Welcome back to Ibiza, The Reset Rebel, with me, Joe Yule. And today, I'm joined by a lady who was born and raised in Amsterdam, but who now lives in Ibiza. She created Supermarket, a successful design house that ran for 21 years, and subsequently spent seven years in New York running her own photography agency. She now owns a restaurant on the island, inspired by spending much of her time at the diner in Williamsburg, as her love for food, fashion, people music and furniture eventually brought her adventure here in Ibiza to life. So Nelika Strikers, welcome to Ibiza the Reset Rebel podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. And first and foremost, <laughs> thank you for um, sort of driving here through the, the driving, pouring rain outside. Most people in Ibiza are very flaky and, you know, one little uh, dribble and they're kind of blowing everything out. Well, the truth is, it's a little bit dangerous here. The roads are just not made for so much water, you know. So even driving here this little after how many minutes of rain, maybe 15 minutes, it's already flooded. So it's more the the roads that are not made for it, I think. The people are used to it. Like me, I'm coming from Amsterdam, it's raining a lot. I was going to say, I mean, this must be quite reminiscent of home at this time of year. Yes, it is. And I do miss home a little bit, so thankful for that. So what brought you um, to Ibiza? I came to Ibiza already when I was very young. The first time I was actually flying by myself. I was 16 and it was the first holiday and I've spent many, many, many summers after that here. And I knew instantly I wanted to live here one day. It took me a long time though. (laughs) But still, I I came here after a lot of years. And I went here because my daughter turned 12 and she was going to high school. And I thought, this is the moment. I can bring her to Ibiza and uh, bring her to school here. And uh, so we went on a holiday and I showed her the schools here like we did in Amsterdam and she instantly loved it. So it was like, okay, that's a done deal. She kind of made the decision. What did you get up to at 16 years of age when you came on your first holiday to Ibiza? (laughs) Um, what wow what it was just a different world you know and you feel at home instantly that was my feeling I felt at home and I felt loved and I felt inspired and I felt everything I wanted to feel in a place where you where you choose to live it's funny you mentioned the word love because there's a lot of love going on across your boobs, if you don't mind me yes, saying. You've love. got a wonderful T-shirt on that says love right across the boobs as well. <laughs> you have got wonderful boobs. It, yeah. I didn't want to say that, but you know, now we're going there. Let's just go there. They are fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one way to break yeah. the ice. I mean, you know, that's an interesting story because I know, as you say, um, I obviously had a little dig around in um, in the research pot this morning before I came to meet you, and there was an article about you in Vogue. And you sort of said that, you know, your daughter was here with you from 12 to 16, but she moved back to Holland. Is she still there? She's still in Holland. Yeah, yeah. At a certain moment, I found out that she was no longer happy here, not the way that I felt. And she was missing her independence. You know, she was being a a child of 12. You could already cycle by yourself through Amsterdam, go to your friends, go to a playground or do some shopping or go to the gym. And here, everything that she wanted to do, she had to include me. Mom, can you drive me here? Can you pick me up there? Um, and I noticed it, the world was becoming too small for her. She needed to go back to Holland. And uh, it was a tough decision. Mm-hmm. But in the end, it made us both happy. And we miss each other. But of course, it's only a flight away and it's not far. And we FaceTime a lot, you know, so we see each other often. It's a different world than when I was young and lived abroad. But then my mom was like, you know, writing me a letter and I would reply six weeks later, you know. And now we can instantly uh, see each other. So it's a different different time you do kind of need a chauffeur though living living in Ibiza I mean that's kind of like how it is it's a bit like America isn't it? everything's so spread out and sort of buried down a Camino in the bog ass end of nowhere it's you know a wonderful thing that things are sort of hidden away and secret and exciting but it's also yeah I'm, I'm sure it's very challenging for a teenager that wants their independence yeah I think for teenagers except when you're born here when you're born and raised I think you're used to this but my daughter was already used to the independence and suddenly she became dependent again while her age was giving her the moment of yeah, freedom you know you have to set yourself free and become loose from your parents basically mm. yeah 
At what moment did you set yourself free? Me? Already younger than that. <laughs> I had a feeling. Yeah, well, the, the history always repeats itself, they say. And I decided to live by myself when I was 15. And uh, my daughter went back to Holland when she was 16, but she went back and lived with her father. So she didn't really move completely by herself, you know. So it was still a good feeling for me. But I was thinking, oh, my God, you know, remembering that my mother had to let go of me when I was 15. It's crazy. I don't. I still don't understand why and how I did it, but I did it. Yeah. You must have reflected on that in your later years about the, what drove you to go and strike out solo, yeah. uh, if you'll excuse the pun, at 15. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I was very independent already when I was very young and, and I had a very independent mum as well. She taught me a lot. And uh, basically, she came, became a single mom when she was 21, which is also quite extraordinary in that time. And um, um, yeah, she was not far away. You know, we've alre- always been close. So even though I was not living at home, it didn't feel like I, you know, I, I separated from her. It was just I moved to a different location and living by myself. I mean, what did that feel like to at 15 years of age to go and basically set up home or on your on your own? Yeah, well, I came in a house in a big big villa in where all my friends lived, a lot of my friends. So this was an opportunity, one of the rooms came available and I thought if I don't go now, I have to wait maybe 3-4 years, you know. So I didn't really move all by myself in a single place somewhere. I was like in this house with my best friends. So it was like a family feeling still, although I was living with young adults like me. And how did that dramatically change the path of your life? What do you think that that opened up for you um, by, you know, taking that massively bold step at just 15? I didn't feel, it didn't feel like a bold step. It felt like something really natural. And uh, I think a lot of people would have expected me to go partying all the time and things like this, but I was, I didn't do that. You know, I was just living a great life with in a house with friends that I still have. Some of them are still friends of mine. And um, yeah, it didn't feel like a crazy decision. But now looking back, I, I realize what my mom must have felt, you know, because I felt completely secure. I'm going to do this, you know, it's no doubt about it. And it didn't go wrong. I wasn't using a lot of drugs or drinking or partying. I was a very normal, happy young adult that was you know interested in fashion and in art and music yeah still the same interest that i have today yeah i think that's an interesting you know road to take i mean i left home at 18 and i never moved back i went to australia for a year and my mother was absolutely devastated and you know i think if you're going to move out and then move to the other side of the world as well is uh probably you know my poor mother i definitely gave her a few gray hairs bless her but i think you know that for me absolutely i just wanted to set myself free really i really wanted to be able to do exactly what i wanted to do and not have anybody tracking my movements or what time i was coming home or yeah i just needed to go and 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 kind of find my wings but you know you said in the article that perhaps that kind of gave you this opportunity to actually just maybe check in and and you know figure out what you really wanted to do and give yourself the space and the time to do that so i wonder what you mean by that well I think for every decision in life, you need to take your time and you need to have your solitary time in a way. You know, you need to be alone and reflect. And uh, doing this in a household with a mother or uh, sisters or, you know, a family life, it's much, much harder because, you know, you come, you're in this routine, you know, you have to, can you set the table? Can you, you know, it's like all these things that happen in a normal household. And when you live by yourself, you basically take every step yourself and there's no one else controlling it no one is telling you you have to eat now no if i want to eat at 11 at night i can do it there's no one telling me hey you know we eat at six in the evening Mm -hmm. so it's just it was this what i wanted i wanted to explore how my life would be if i made all the choices myself and of course it is very young i realized that but apparently i was ready you know Mm -hmm. Would you call yourself rebellious? Yeah, I think I'm a rebel. (laughs) Also in the way I look, in the way I dress, in the way I, you know, the things that I like, I've never followed the normal path, you know. It's never like, okay, this is in fashion, so that's what I'm wearing, or this is what I'm supposed to do, so that's what I'm doing. I'd like to be 
not I, I don't do things because I want to be controversial, but I know that I'm not following the normal path. So when was it then that the kind of inspiration, I guess, kind of came to you to set up the supermarket design house? Well, I mean, fashion has been a red thread in my life from young girl. You know, when I was like 12, 13, I was already making my own clothing, but in a different way, not with a sewing machine, but just with with pins and, and cutting and just creating something myself. And so I've always felt that fashion is uh, going to be something I want to do. And um, my first job, because when I, when I left home, when I went to live on myself, I was still going to school. And But like three months later, I came home and I told my mom, I'm quitting school. So that was really the devastating moment for my mother, much more even than me telling I want to live by myself. So when the moment when I said I want to quit school, it was just, I thought I'm going to find my path and it's going to be in fashion, but I don't know what yet, but... It will be there. And then I found a f- a st- uh, my first real job in a, f- a vintage fashion store, which back then vintage could really be like something you could become a millionaire with, you know. So my boss became a millionaire, actually. Um, and I worked, I was a young girl <coughs> and I was doing this store and I was making the whole place look amazing. I was doing the, the redesigning. I was buying, I was selling, doing the windows and I loved it. So, yeah, that was the first job, and I did this till, till I was 20. <clears throat> and then I moved to Amsterdam, because I was living in a, a small city near Amsterdam. And then I moved to Amsterdam, and I found a store, uh, a job in a shoe store. And then I was discovered as a model at the same time. So I was doing modeling, and um, that was, again, fashion-related. And then... I lived uh, a few months in Madrid, a few months in London, all doing the modeling job, and a few months in Germany. And in the end, um, after five years of modeling or six years of modeling, in the meantime, I was creating my own accessory brand called um, Hunters and Collectors. And um, it was discovered by one of the stylists, actually. She saw me with some suspenders. Is Is this a suspender? Or braces, braces, okay. With She saw me with braces that I made myself, elastic with lace over it, a little bit of Madonna look. And uh, she said, oh my God, where did you get those? And I said, I made them. She said, no way, you need to go to uh, some stores. They're going to love this. So I took her advice and I went to these stores and they all bought and like a couple of hundreds of them, you know, like a big, like Harrods kind of place in Holland. And Oops. <laughs> Uh, so a couple of uh, stores bought it, and that was the beginning of Hunters and Collectors. And then it, this became a big brand, like big, uh, with exclamation mark. Um, and in the end, we sold to Harrods and Harvey Nichols and Whistles in London. Those were three amazing clients. And we sold because we were like the first accessory brand that existed, except uh, Esprit. I don't know if you know this this store. They had very classical brown leather um leather belts and very, yeah, a little bit classic. And we were completely funky, the opposite of it. And um, yeah, this brand um, was quite quite nice, uh, I have to say, and we sold to good places, but I'm not really a business woman at that time, definitely not. So we also made some mistakes, like we, we were selling uh, on short term. So I designed something today and I it would be in the store three months later. And uh, this meant that we had to take big risks, you know, like what color is going to sell best? Oh, I think this color, the the purple one. And then it would be the red one, you know. So then we had too little of red and too much of purple. So we made some mistakes there. In the end, uh, we decided to sell this company and we sold it to a kind of Esprit-like store from Holland called Sandwich. It was a very big brand. It was sold worldwide. And they wanted me to design their first accessory line. They never had done any accessories before. So I started to design for them. And this brought me to to China for production instead of to Europe. So I learned a lot there. And then I thought, you know, um, I can do much more for this company. So let's also organize the photography and the fashion shows because that was my background being a model. So I helped them um, creating their first uh, like lookbook which was also new. No one did this before as well. 
And then we did fashion shows. And then I thought, hmm, I actually like all this production uh, instead of designing. I was a little bit fed up, you know. What, what can you do with a bag and a belt and a baseball cap, you know. In, in a certain moment, you've done everything in that style, what you can do. So then I decided I wanted to become a, a producer in photography. And uh, I found a job first at a big agency in Holland. And a couple of years later, I started my own agency called Nell. And this one, again, very fashion-related. We did all the magazines. We were the first um, fa- uh, photography agency in Holland who worked with bl- magazines like ID and Face and Vogue in Paris. Um, so we were quite a good agency. And then I decided to open the agency in New York as well. And this went very well as well. It was immediately successful. Ten young Dutch photographers who were thinking outside of the box instead of the very regular photography that was already done. Of course, amazing photography com- comes from New York, from the big, the big, big, big names. But they were super interested in new talents. So uh, we worked immediately for big brands like Neiman Marcus and Nike and Adidas and all these big fashion stores and and like the Gap or all these kind of things. We worked together with them. And then 9-11 happened. And this uh, brought not only uh, the towers down, but also the whole business. So it was completely dead for uh, many, many months. And this month, the bills were still there. Mm. But at what point did you finish your kind of career in fashion and move into the world of, you know, being a photographic agency? I mean, I know that the two worlds collide. I'm not (coughs) suggesting that there was a clear bookmark. Obviously, the two things rolled, but you obviously left you know, your home in Holland and went to live in New York. So I'm interested, like, what was the kind of closing of that chapter apart from just selling the business? Well, it was not really a closure. I've always felt like wherever I lay my head is my home. I've never felt like Holland is my home. I need to stay in Holland, you know. I've always thought I've lived, when I was a model, I was also living everywhere. And I enjoy going to a different place and just figure out uh, what is life going to be like there. And turning into an agent instead of uh, being the creative myself was just a moment of relief for me because I was a little bit fed up being the creator. I wanted to help create. It was just a change. And after that, I turned back to creating again. So it's not that this was a decision that I made for life, but I go with the flow. If I feel like now I want to do this, then I do it. I'm not just a dreamer. I'm a doer. What was the moment then, or how did it feel to be one moment, as as you said, like in front of the lens as a model and then to perhaps, you know, take a step back and and be behind? Well, I loved it. (laughs) It's um, being in front of a a camera is nice, but it's also a little bit um, flat. It's a little bit empty. You can't really give a lot more than, you, you know, be pretty or be crazy or you know it's all about the outside it's not about anything that comes out of you so when and I've always been creative also when I was a model I was still creating my own clothing and and when this was noticed and I saw hey this is a way out I can now do something different and I was completely happy you know making that change and but what pressures did you face as a model? I'm just interested as a woman, like, you know, it's an intriguing story because there's a lot of women that are models for many, many years, but you've just described it as an empty feeling. So I'm interested in more about that. No, it was not an empty feeling all the time. But in the end, I felt like, OK, you know, I'm, I've done everything. I've done all the fashion shows. I've done all the magazines. I've done all the campaigns. I'm in, I mean, I was completely happy with what I achieved, but there was no challenge anymore. And when that challenge is gone, then I'm bored. So that's basically what happens, you know. And during the photography shoots, very often I was like, maybe we should wear this like this or maybe. And then often photographers would tell me, no, you should also do styling, you know. So this kind of fed me into thinking, okay, there is something else besides this. And of course, modeling is a temporary job, you know, unless you're like a top, top, top model. But... Uh, And I love food a lot, so I didn't want to diet all the time, you know. Uh, Things like this, there's lots of reasons why you don't want to stay a model forever. What were your uh, little tricks to kind of get thin fast after a little uh, (laughs) bit of overindulgence? Well, uh, my trick was just, you know, I was thinking I'm who I am. If they don't like me how I am, they book someone else, you know. I've never really stressed about it, yeah. Mm. 
And I was never a really skinny, skinny model. You know, I was always curvy, which doesn't mean I was fat, but I was curvy then. Yeah, it's just interesting because obviously, you know, this heroin chic is apparently back, according to the magazines this week. And it's just really nauseating to see that storyline coming back to the fore. And it's like, who decides that heroin chic is back? It just makes you want to punch people. It's like, that's not okay to be feeding young women this narrative. Well, I think what what as a mother, what I fed to my daughter was, you know, you have just be yourself. You're the most beautiful you can be is yourself. So never worry that someone else is taller, skinnier, uh, whatever, uh, has more gorgeous eyes or whatever. You know, it's just be you. And I think that's what we all need to tell ourselves, you know. And uh, for who do you want to be skinny, skinny, skinny? Who? What? What's the advantage if you are super skinny? So is that going to make you more happy? I like food a lot, you know. And I, if I can imagine myself... Not eating because I want to be skinny, skinny. I would, yeah, would not love my life as much. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can't possibly work in a restaurant or you know live that life um, in the kind of circles and mingling and having a very sociable life. I think if you are not interested in food, and I think food is just another thing that complements the pleasures and the joy of life, which are immense and and huge. I mean, you know, obviously some people tackle that in different ways, but I wholeheartedly agree with you. I'd rather be. Um, I think Kate Moss once said that nothing tastes as, as good, good as, as skinny yeah, feels. I and I was a bit like, yeah. nah, don't agree <laughs> with you there, darling, no, because actually, no. I mean, for me, I need to be able to, to, as you say, like indulge in life's simple pleasures. And there's plenty of time for abstinence in this in this world. And there's a time and a place for it. But especially at this time of year, when we're moving towards Christmas, it's time to enjoy. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Actually, Kate Moss was in WOW once. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, she's really a beautiful uh, and very skinny, not super skinny, not heroin uh, skinny, but she is a gorgeous woman. Uh, but I think a lot of women like that don't have to uh, watch their food so much. Maybe they say they do, but I think some people are just built like that, you know, and it's fine. I cannot imagine because she was eating in the restaurant, you know. <laughs> she yeah, was not, but not eating, I yeah. think something happens to your DNA when you take drugs for that many years that you just organically stay slimmer. Like if you look at most of the rock stars, I don't think, you know, none of them are fat. No. And they spent a many, 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 many years, like some of the big ones, like doing a lot of heroin. And I don't think, well, apart from Pete Doherty, of course, he then went on to the cheese diet. Where <laughs> I love those pictures of him. He's so funny. Yeah. But I'm so happy for him because he looks, okay, overweight, but yeah. at least he's not you know, unhealthy anymore. So it's a very fine line. But, you know, who says what's attractive? I mean, it's just about what's on the inside, as you just pointed out, and and how good you feel and how healthy you are at the end of the day. It's not down to, you know, whether those skinny jeans are going to slide on. I mean, I had my own struggle with a pair this morning when I was like, crikey, I would have thought those would just, you know, be easy to get on after the summer. But I was unpleasantly surprised (laughs) when I put my feet in them this morning. I was like barely getting them over my knees. Well, yeah, that happens to every woman, I think. (laughs) And of course, you know, being fat is also not healthy, you know, so there is a nice way in between. I bless myself. I don't like alcohol. I don't drink. You know, it's just because I don't like the taste. So I love water and I love tea and lots of uh, normal kind of drinks. But I don't like alcohol, thank God. Because I think if you drink a lot, if you have a restaurant and you drink every day, it's also super unhealthy. Yeah, I'm sure struggle is real. I mean, for people that do have restaurants here and you see the state of people from the beginning to the end of the summer and something, you know, a lot that I see is, you know, people just look like a train wreck by the end of the summer because they're just socializing and having that cheeky glass with their clients or their guests on a boat or, a, you know, whatever company they have. And it's, you know, it must be very, very hard to abstain. And again, it comes down to discipline and having a routine and, you know, wanting to look and feel and be a certain way. Um, but, you know, what was that like then when you left Holland and you went and set up in New York? Talk to us about your time in uh, in Brooklyn. Were you there? Yeah. No, it wasn't Brooklyn. I was actually on Lafayette and Grand, which is the corner of Soho and Chinatown. And um, yeah, I've always kind of felt like I'm born lucky in that sense, because if I decide to move to New York, uh, the first thing that happened was making that decision. The second thing that happened was getting an invitation from Milk Studios to do a big exhibition with my photographers, which I mean, that was uh, I I think it's still one of the biggest uh, 
studios, but back then it was the hotspot and they invited me, you know, so it was not that I was chasing them. Like, so then the, the first was, okay, we're going to move to New York. The second was, hey, we've got an invitation to do this exhibition. And the third one was that we decided to rent this really small apartment, really, really small apartment uh, with all of my photographers. So 10 photographers, me, an assistant, <laughs> And um, um, we decided to hand out all our invitations for this uh, exhibition to the rest of New York because we didn't know anybody. We were completely new in this town and we were like, okay, you know, how are we? Someone helped me to get a, a list together of all the right magazines, right? Advertising people, right? Important influencers. Well, they were not called influencers then, but still. Uh, the right people and uh, when the party was there someone came to me and, and said Nelleke how did you do this I said what do you mean all everyone is here I said I have no clue who's here you know so we had one big wall with a picture of us with saying who we were but all the people that were there we had no clue mm -hmm. and then after the exhibition the first phone call we got was from American Vogue they wanted to see two of the photographers so this and then it just kept rolling And being in a different city, yeah, I find it exciting, you know. It doesn't uh, scare me. A lot of people say, but how do you do this? You just move to a different country and then? I said, well, you know, I don't know. I just connect with people and I try to find out, you know, what's the best place to live and where should I find a, an office and things like this. And, and it just goes. So what was life like once the doors opened to the royal kind of, you know, circle over there? I mean, obviously, everyone's dream. I have my own little dream to live there for a couple of years after a wonderful eight day stay in Manhattan when I was making a podcast for the Smirnoff Experience series. And I just felt like I was in a film. Like Every day when I opened the door of the W Hotel where they very kindly put me up, I was just like in heaven and I made a little you know pledge to myself to stay there maybe for a year one at one point in the future sadly it never happened and I've been back lots but I can't imagine actually you know living the dream essentially I mean that's what a lot of people really can visualize themselves like you know working in the fashion world there well I mean I have to say it is a dream it's amazing it's super inspiring it's but it's full on full on There's no rest, you know. That's the one thing that I miss from New York. It's there's always something happening. You're in one place and you know, hey, I need to be there. You have to go somewhere else. You need to be there. Oh, no, now something's happening over there. There's an exhibition. There's an opening. There's a party. There's an event. There's some place. You need, it's all about networking. And all my friends said at a certain moment, it's no longer networking, it's nail working. Because I was everywhere. It was nonstop everywhere, you know. So it's a kind of, it's a life that you need to choose for. It's not like uh, being here in the campo and chilling with my dogs and meditating and taking time for myself. It's complete opposite. And at that time, I wasn't a mom yet, you know, so I was by myself. I was single and I thought either I'm going to fall in love with someone here and then I'm going to stay here or I'm going to fall in love back home or elsewhere. But wherever I'm going to fall in love is where I'm going to end up. And then I fell in love with someone in Holland, strange enough, on one of my short trips back. So I thought, okay, it's going to be Holland. Um, yeah, but that's a little bit how I feel, you know, about life. It just brings you to places and, and when it's time to move on, it's time to move on. But like I want to tell you, if your dream is to, to live in New York, just do it. What's keeping you? Well, I think I was, you know, I've spent a lot of time, for example, I worked for CNN International, one of my first jobs, but I feel like Americans work hard. I mean, they work extremely hard. And I've done all of that in my journalism career in London. So I don't, I don't want to go back to that. I don't think that would make me happy, that pace of life after living here. It would be like out of the frying pan into the fire. So, you know, that was my dream probably in my sort of late 20s, early 30s. But I'm not sure if I could hack the pace, if I'm if I'm supremely honest. But I think in terms of podcasting, to live over there or work for like someone like Jimlet would be would be my dream for sure. And if I didn't have a partner and <laughs> things going on over here, to be honest, I have applied for jobs over there in the not too distant past. Even when me and my partner first got together, I was still... I must admit, applying and thinking, oh, I wonder if I could persuade him to move over there. But I think that ship has potentially maybe sailed. I mean, I, I can't imagine. Is it not something you can do like for a couple of months? I would say then you can also do this like for three months or something. 
Maybe. This is turning into a, a careers advice session. I love it. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let you know. It's definitely not off the table, but we'll see. But who did you fall in love with? Because you've given us this little oh, kind of well, carrot this dangling. Is also, this is also a funny story because I actually fell in love with the father of my daughter. And this was uh, this happened uh, on the wedding of my mom. So my mom got married for the thir- third time. And uh, I ran into him and it was uh, like an instant love feeling. Yeah. How did you meet him? Um, (laughs) This wedding was in a castle and um, I was making a movie as a present to my mom and her partner, um, which uh, because I thought they have everything, you know, when you're this old in life, you have everything. What can you give to someone? So I felt every person that was there needed to say something in a camera and was either about the future, the past or the present. And they had to pick up a, a block that said future, past, present. And then they had to say something. So otherwise everyone would just say happy, you know, happy for you or your marriage. So this was quite an interesting thing. And it also brought me in touch with every person in this uh, on this wedding. And he was there. And uh, after this little talk on the video where there was something happening between him and me, we ran into each other on the hallway. And he said, can I ask you something? I said, of course. And he said, why do you wear your hair the way you do? And I had like this mullet, you know, even way more extreme than now. I said, because I like it. And that's how we started talking. And then we just spent the whole evening together. He loves a woman with a mullet. Well, I think he didn't really love that so much, (laughs) to be honest, to begin with. But (laughs) he thought it was intriguing because I was different. And it was obvious I was not the same as every other woman there. What did he say in in the video? Anything, uh, maybe was something captivating? To be honest, I don't remember what he said in the video. I've never watched it back. And this is a long time ago. Maybe it's time. Yeah. (laughs) Let us know what he says. I don't have a video recorder anymore, you know. It's, (laughs) I don't even, I can't even play it anymore. The glory days of VHS. And so you met your partner, you went back to live in Holland. And and how long did you stay there before you moved here? I went back after 9-11 because I was in New York when that happened. And I was living in Lafayette and Grand. So it was when the tower would have fallen like this, I would have been under. So it was very near to where it happened. I heard the first plane. I called him and I said, listen, there's a plane crash. Uh, I'm not under it, just so you know. And then... I went outside to have a look on the parking lot and I saw the second plane flying in and I was like, okay, I'm in a war. Something's happening here. This is not normal. And I was super afraid, of course, like the rest of everyone who was there. And um, yeah, there was one thing I wanted. It was go back and leave New York. It was instant like, okay, I'm done here. I want to go back. I want to be safe. I, I felt super unsafe. And, uh, yeah, that's when I also made that decision. But I couldn't leave for two weeks. Uh, whole Manhattan was closed down instantly. No planes were flying. So, uh, yeah. I mean, I remember I was at the BBC at Television Centre in London and that started to happen when I was working there as a yeah. producer. And I just, yeah, I mean, all the TVs were on. We are all sitting there glued to it. But when the second plane hit, I mean, yeah, that sent shivers down my spine when you just sent that. And I just cannot imagine what it felt like to be in the thick of all of that and then you hear that there's five more planes missing at that point you know and they had no clue where they were they just knew there's five more planes where we don't know where they are so yeah and then suddenly we had to leave our apartments and we had to evacuate that area so then you go somewhere else and you think but now I'm close to uh, the Empire State Building maybe one of those planes is going to fly in there you know what else is going to happen and then you see this big dark cloud and they were all saying there's chemical weapons in there and I mean there was so much going on and so much um, yeah really frightening feeling I could suddenly relate much more also to people who live their entire life in a war zone you know there's so many places in the world which are never safe and I was like oh this is how it's like, you know, this is, this is, this never, you don't feel secure anymore. You really feel completely vulnerable and, and yeah, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, yeah, that is exactly, I think, a cold, hard reality. And none of us know we're born living in this Ibiza bubble. We have no idea. Most people I hang out with don't 
really engage with the news at all. And I and I go through phases, I think, of, of you know, immersing deeply, working as a journalist. I did quit like a news reading job that I did for two years during the pandemic. And it's a, it's a, it's a funny one. And it's tricky. You know, obviously, ignorance is definitely bliss. But um, I think it's, you know, you must have suffered some sort of mild PTSD from all of that. Yeah, I think I did. Because me- for many years after after that moment, whenever I heard a plane, my, my body was doing this, you know, I was going... I was like, I can't, exp- I don't know how to say this. Shrinking. Shrinking, exactly. My body was awesome. And I was always thinking, what am I doing? Oh, I'm hearing a plane, you know? And it wasn't uh, like there is a reaction in your body and in your mind. And yeah, I think I'm I'm not the kind of person that hides the feelings, you know? So I cry whenever I want to cry. I laugh if I want to laugh. And I also share if I'm afraid or whatever, you know? So um I think I'm lucky that I'm born like that and I'm not one person that hides it all inside, you know. Mm. So what what, you know, what was the catalyst? Was that the catalyst to get you to leave New York? That was definitely. Yeah. And of course the love in Holland and the that was the moment that I felt okay. I'm going, not coming back. Mm. Yeah. I think it's very interesting. We've explored this on a previous podcast with a musician called Lou Rhodes from the band Lamb. And we did a whole episode during the pandemic about what the word home really means because I wasn't at home. I was stuck in India and she was like nesting and doing all these creative, beautiful projects and singing and learning to play piano. And I was feeling like, yeah, like I had to find home where I was and within myself. And it was kind of an interesting thing. So like, what was that? What was that like when you actually got home? And did it feel like home? And what was the sensation of getting your little toes back on Dutch soil? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to go back to that moment. I know that I was super, super happy and relieved. But I also felt a little bit disunder- disunderstood. I don't know how you say, if you can say it like Mis- this. Misunderstood. Well, misunderstood is maybe not also not the right word, but I like you didn't like, fit in. Yeah, and I also felt like the people back home did not realize what really happened. You know, they could not feel the same things that I felt, and they they, they didn't experience. Of course, they had a different scare. They thought, "Where is Nelleke? You know, with who is she? Is she gonna be okay?" But I was there, seeing all these people covered in 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 all the dust from the towers, and you know, being there and actually. Being in the middle of all this, this, this frightening and 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 panic feeling, that's something that's that's stuck on you. And and I felt a little bit misunderstood. Yeah, mm. yeah. But I felt the same not so long ago when I spent eleven days in hospital here with COVID. I was stuck there, and I felt like you know I don't belong here. I need to get away. I felt it was super bad for me to stay there, and they wouldn't let me go. They kept me for 11 days in that hospital. Mm-hmm. And also then when I came home, I, and my daughter was home and my sister, and I said, you know, I could only cry. I said, I, I you don't, I kept calling them late, like, get me away from here. And they felt like, no, you have, you know, you have COVID, you need to stay there. But I totally did not need to stay there. I needed to get away. Mm-hmm. So that was another moment in my life that I felt like misunderstood by the people that love me and that the, by the people that I love. But it's just because you're in two different worlds. They have no clue what you're going through when you're there Mm. and vice versa. Yeah. I mean, hospitals are never a nice place to be, no matter what's wrong with you. I mean, I remember once when I had gastroenteritis and I was, you know, lying in a cubicle. And I just remember being surrounded by people who were extremely ill. I mean, way worse than I was, although I genuinely felt like I was dying. It was listening to those noises and I remember closing my eyes and just honestly just wishing that anyone would get me out of there I mean even in my very 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 precarious state I just didn't want to be there and even that just one night was the longest night of my life and I'm pretty sure someone opposite me actually passed away during the night and it was yeah it's terrifying when you're surrounded by unwell people and particularly when you know perhaps with covid you felt like you didn't belong there it's a scary thing and i think we've all just been through just a massive massive traumatizing event that you know even people now are still sort of talking about their experiences and it's not you know it's over in in terms of the the pandemic but in terms of i think people's feelings and sensations and the things that they experienced i mean we're still we're still experiencing in my humble opinion yes we are (laughs) And also, uh, business-wise, we're still experiencing, you know, a lot of businesses suffered, a lot of businesses 
passed away, not only people, there's also a lot of uh, other things that uh, that couldn't survive. I mean, survival of the fittest is, is something that people talk about a lot. But then you just think, is it survival of the fittest or survival of the people with the biggest pockets, essentially? Because life at the moment is is a real challenge for a lot of people, not just from a, a physical perspective, but from a, you know, looming long term perspective. Like, how are we going to endure this kind of, I like to call it a game, really, life. I mean, you know, we're still in it to win it, but ultimately it doesn't come without its obstacles that you need to overcome and they're very unexpected uh, lately yes. <laughs> and they keep on coming yeah yeah it's true it's true but i'm i'm always positive the, in in the end everything will be good or else it's not the end that's something i always tell myself mm. and uh, i honestly believe that also you know all is good in the end I like that. I like that quote as well. And um, yeah, I live by it as well. I just think, well, I'm still here. And um, <laughs> who knows what's going around the corner. But I think ultimately, as you say, if you compare yourself to things going on in other parts of the world, we're living the dream here. We're extremely safe. We're in a bubble. I think Nostradamus, I read the other day, called Ibiza the last living refuge on planet Earth, no matter what happens in this lifetime. And you know, who knows whether that's actually true, but it's to do with the winds and, you know, nuclear war and God only knows what what could possibly unfold in the not too distant future. But apparently this is like one of the safest places on Earth. And I must admit, I have never felt safer in my entire life living here. Yeah, me too. I feel completely safe. Yeah. And of course, I mean, island life, they say it's on lots of islands. It's not just Ibiza. It's the, the fact that you're surrounded by water and that it's not... You can't just walk or drive in your car and be in a different world. You know, you're stuck here in a way. And but it also means that, that all the energies from the rest of the world doesn't really enter except with people who fly in or like that. But it, it doesn't affect you as much. You know, like what you said, your friends don't really watch the news. I try to watch as less as possible as well. But of course, with a daughter living in Holland, uh, I st- I'm still interested what's going on. And the other day, my daughter surprised me, by the way, telling me that she eventually thinks that she's going to end up in politics, which I was like, okay, wow, that's a completely different uh, future than I've ever thought of for myself, let alone uh, for her. But it's I like it that she also, you know, does her own figure out her own path. Mm. Yeah. What would you say the biggest challenge, apart from obviously the obvious ones that you've just uh, told us about, but what's the biggest challenge that you faced since you got to Ibiza? The biggest challenge is um, finding the balance between letting your family and friends go, you know, and finding the balance and being peace with that. For me, that's the biggest challenge because my my best friends, my, my family, my mom passed away at the beginning of this year, but she lived in Holland, you know, they all live there and um, being able to be completely happy here with them not near me that was the biggest challenge Mm. yeah and life here has its challenges too Ibiza challenges everyone that comes here you know you don't you get nothing for granted you know you really have to fight and have to show that you really belong here and that you want to give as much as that that you're going to get you know some people come here just to receive things forget it you have to give a lot, and otherwise you won't receive. What do you feel that you're giving to the island? Well, I what I try to give, <laughs> I don't know if I'm giving it, but I'm trying to give um, a different uh, view on fashion because, of course, that whole Ibiza hippie look is so not me. And it's something that I've never understood that all these, especially women, actually want to wear all these white... Uh, uh, lace dresses and I don't know it's just not me so I uh, that w- this was something that a lot of the DJs who shopped in my store in Amsterdam told me please come to Ibiza and bring this fashion because we don't have it um, so that's something that I bring and then when opening wow uh, not just the, the store but also the restaurant I was hoping to bring a location where people would uh, find f- the, the feeling of having a second home you know, like um, you walk in there, you can come by yourself, you can come for a drink, you can come play uh, some soccer uh, in the pool t- or p- some pool. You can meet up with friends before you go to a party or before you go for dinner somewhere else or you can have dinner with us. I just wanted to create this place where people 
yeah, would like like to hang out. And I missed that. I couldn't find it. Like all my favorite restaurants, for instance, here, I was welcome to come for dinner. And then after dinner, please move because we have the table booked for someone else. And this made me so unhappy because in Amsterdam, I always had these hangouts, these places where I used to go also by myself very often and just see who am I going to run into? Who am I going to have dinner with tonight? Let's see. Or maybe we go and grab a movie or... And this is something I missed. And this is what I wanted to create and hopefully give to the island. Do you feel that there's a slight sense of disconnect in the community here in that way? Um, Well, I, I think... I'm not sure if it's a disconnect because I think that everyone wants this. Everyone wants to find this place, but it's not there. It was not there. And I hope if they find, wow, that they find this feeling and they find that, hey, now we can create this place for us, Mm -hmm. for our community. Who named wow, wow? Me. (laughs) It was actually the first word that I said when I walked into the place. And I said it because I instantly saw what I was going to create there. And I said, wow. And I thought later when I came home, I thought, hmm, my previous brand was called Supermarket, Super. And I thought from Super to Wow is also a very logical next step. It's the, the next level. You've and even it, got it tattooed on your yeah, wrist. I've got it tattooed. I've got it tattooed when on the one year existence. And it's, to me, it's mom and wow. You know, you can read it upside down and it's mom. So... Um, um, yeah, but I, I felt like WOW is really, it, it stands for World of WOW for everything that I love. I'm sorry to hear about your mother, by the way. I didn't say that before. I, that was my intention to at least say something. So I'm very sorry. To, and I saw the beautiful picture of her on your Instagram yeah. account. And do you guys like twins? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Not, 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 not necessarily so much in how we are, but uh, yeah, we, we did, did look alike. She was an amazing mom. So I just hope I'm going to be as amazing for my daughter. I'm sure you will. What's the biggest thing she taught you? The biggest thing she taught me is... Um, I think to let go, you know, that's super difficult being with someone you love so much, but let go, you know, let give them their own space. That's not easy. And that's also not easy in a relationship, I think. But uh, especially with your child, it's uh, it's what you need to do from day one because they're going to, you know, start walking, start cycling, swimming, all these scary things that you have to let go and let them do this. Mm-hmm. I think that was the biggest lesson. Did she have any choice? Did she have any choice? She has every choice. (laughs) I made her choose everything. But I always taught her, try to think in solutions. You know, if you, because she often asked me, mom, I can't find my my bag for the the gym, you know. And then I said, what's the solution, Lee? And then she would say, uh... Maybe find another bag. I said, that's a good idea, you know. So I always try to taught her to think in solutions. Because if you can always think in problems in life, because there's always a problem, you know. Every day brings new problems. But if you try and think what can be the solution, it makes life a lot more fun. Interesting, actually. I heard a, a brilliant um, affirmation up at the Six Senses Festival from Sada Simone, who's going to be on the podcast very, very soon. And yeah, I mean, it was just like the affirmation was like, all of my problems have been solved. And like everybody, like 100 people chanting it in a room. And it was, I was just like, wow, this is like a powerful moment of manifestation. And actually like getting in amongst it just felt really amazing. And I love that. And a very old partner of mine actually used to say solutions not problems which I love and actually that really has stuck in my mind through the years because I think Ibiza you know there are a few challenges that need to be faced by living here but there's always a solution it just takes a moment to check out of the situation that you're in currently and um and have a little thinky poos about how to tackle <laughs> what the solution might be or you know, find somebody that does know the answer and can and support you and help you. And I've never been very good at asking for help, but I've had to do a lot of that this year, actually. And, and great things have happened. And I think the community is extremely strong here, actually, once you really realise that it's okay to ask. And as soon as you do, that you're actually empowering yourself rather than the opposite. Yeah, exactly. And it's also the other cliche is, you know, is your half glass half full or half empty, you know? How do you look at life? And that's another, it's something you can trigger yourself, I think. Of course, I mean, I think I'm born with this lucky thing. It's called optimism. I'm like a super optimistic person. 
And uh, in Holland, when you sneeze three times, you always say tomorrow is a beautiful day. And if I sneeze, I always sneeze three times. It's not something I can I can program myself with. It just happens, you know. So I think, you know, when you can see the optimistic side of life, you are born very lucky. So I feel I'm born lucky. And seven, it's an orgasm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Cheers. Let's take another <laughs> sip <laughs> of our half empty, half full glass. Yeah. Have you ever had an orgasm through sneezing? No, but I do like the feeling. It's very similar. I have to say it's a different kind of orgasm, but I do like it. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought, you know, yeah. just just find out, you know, yeah, seeing as we're here. The orgasm of the nose, which I completely agree with. Yeah. Uh, and um, in in terms of like, I've always been quite fascinated by this trend of late. I mean, it feels like half of Holland is, is sort of shipped out to Ibiza. I mean, what what is driving? Do you think this like exodus um, to the island? Well, <clears throat> I think that Dutch people have always been uh, travelers. You know, it, it's been in our genes for our entire life. We have a very small country, and it's very full. And um, we 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 all speak English, of course, with an accent, not very beautiful, unfortunately. But um, yeah, I think we're just travelers. But we're not the number one uh, country that comes to Ibiza. I just found out we're number four. Who's number one, two, and three? Well, if I'm correct, ooh, I have to think now. But it is England, uh, Ital- Italians, and French. I think. There's no English coming anymore because they can't get a, they can't get a you know a permit to stay. Yeah. yeah, no, no, maybe not living, but maybe visiting. Yeah, you know that sounds about right. And um, you know, I think it's great that we have such an international community here. For me, it's like the number one thing that I love about being here is that you obviously meet such an eclectic, you know, smorgasbord of of people and people from all walks of life and backgrounds. And you must see obviously a lot of that in the restaurant. Yeah, in the restaurant as well as in my private life. I love the international community and it's lots of interesting people, I think, you know, with from artists or writers or musicians or um, some just simply very rich people. You know, it's not like everyone has a, an interesting job or anything, but um, one of the beautiful things of Ibiza, I always think it's a mix. It's an eclectic mix of everything, of all kind of uh, uh, jobs, backgrounds, futures. It's not it's not like one, like the elite in, in New York, for instance. It's different. There is a different kind of uh, people that attract the island, I think. And obviously, like with the restaurant not being open, I mean, how, you know, you were talking about in New York, there's always something happening, there's always something going on. I mean, that's how I feel like it is in the summer. So for me, this is like the magical time of year when I'm not feeling like I'm being pulled from pillar to post and recording things and meeting people and podcasting, you know, nonstop. It's really nice, actually, this time of year. And I feel like there's many things that I want to do and I haven't had time. So it's a great time to embrace that. But I wonder what your plans are for the winter. To learn Spanish. It's a little bit late, actually, but I can speak it a little bit. I can understand it a little bit, but I really want to be able to to have a conversation like what we're having now. And uh, so I'm, I've planned this from January onwards with a, a personal uh, teacher. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. I'm very impressed. <laughs> well, let's do our next talk in Spanish. <laughs> Bring it on. Yeah. What... Um, you know, I mean, I, I just feel sometimes, yeah, not being able to speak absolutely fluent Spanish is definitely something that makes you feel even more alienated here sometimes. And there's those moments when you've got important things to do with, uh, I don't know, taxes or, you know, medical stuff or whatever, that that really becomes an issue. So it's kind of, um, how long have you been here? Eight years. Yeah. I mean, it's never too late at the end of the day. It's a wonderful project. And we'll take you on a on a wonderful journey. So um, I'm intrigued to see how that pans out for you. And that's a great little project for the winter. Anything else? Um, no, I don't think so. Just go with the flow. <laughs> yeah, enjoy life. Do you have, you know, do you enjoy this little break period from not having the restaurant open and being able to take a little step back to maybe plan what's happening in the boutique and all those lovely creative moments? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You know, for me, I always say I don't work a day in my life because I'm doing something I enjoy so much. 
that I don't feel like I'm working. I also don't feel like I have a holiday now. I feel like I'm on holiday since I live in Ibiza for eight years. And of course I work, but I feel like it's one big holiday. I think Dutch are probably one of the hardest working nations on the planet from what I've witnessed and the people I've met. And I'm like, they're all really like entrepreneurial and extremely high rolling kind of successful people. And I'm like, what makes Dutch people that way inclined? Well, I don't have a clue why we are like how we are. It's in our genes, I guess. But um, yeah, I don't I don't really feel Dutch in a way. You know, I, I know I am, but I'm I'm half Hungarian. Um I'm half Dutch. I don't know. I don't feel uh, anything special, like I'm typical this or typical that. But yeah, I just enjoy my work. And I think you're very lucky if you can do something that you enjoy. I mean, absolutely. I think um, I've been freelance. I, I added it up the other day for, I think, 23 years. And, you know, obviously I had my time, staff jobs at CNN and BBC. But to be honest, those were the least happy times of my life when I wasn't in control of my own destiny and what time I was working or when I was working. And, you know, I think my dad always used to say when he used to come here and I'd be like, oh, I've got to go to work today. And I'd take him to a cafe and he'd sit there drinking tea for a couple of hours and then I'd pretty much be done and my work would be done on a laptop overlooking the scene. He was like this is this is your job and I was like well yeah you know I mean obviously it's not always like that it depends what's going on but a lot of the time it's just I can take my laptop wherever I choose and have the most unbelievably gorgeous view and I am you know dancing to my own tune and I think for me in this lifetime that is definitely the most important thing I can't stand to be told what to do or to be given a schedule and to be you know, not in control of my time and how I spend it. And maybe that makes me selfish. I don't know. But I, I really feel like that's the number one thing. smart, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you also, I also realize that not everyone has this power that when you decide, you know, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do that, that I'm going to choose my own path. I think it makes you strong. It makes me strong, you know, that this is what we can choose. A lot of people can't make this kind of cho- choices, I think. But... Let's just uh, be happy who we are. Absolutely. And um, I think, yeah, it's a, it's a good way to end, I think, today's conversation. And I'm really, really grateful that you could squeeze me into your day and um, pop over here in the pouring rain. I think I can actually hear that the rain might have stopped. So you might be able to exit without getting drenched. Very nice. <laughs> Perfect timing. Thank you so much, Nelika Strikers. Thank you so much. Rebel. Coming to you every day.